This was recorded live at the New York Special Edition Comic-Con held by Reed Pop. You know them as the people who put on the really large October New York Comic-Con. And uh, so the Special Edition show is a comics-centric show. It's basically if you took the Artist's Alley from the massive October show and put it in a show all of its own. And this year they actually... um, had a lot more cosplay that I that I noticed, but anyway, the uh, the show did seem to stay really comic focused, and this particular panel was about uh, creating comics and some of the things that you need to think about when you make comics, like contracts and how you get paid and how much money people make and or don't make, and you you know in a utopia they would make. So um, if you check out the show notes, I've got some images of what the panelists did for breaking down where they thought uh, the pay scale should be for each particular task of making comics. I don't think they had editing listed, but um, but a lot of other things were listed there. So uh, take a look at the show notes at amberunmasked.com. And don't forget that if you like the coverage and content of the website, you can go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And you can sponsor everything for as little as a dollar per week. So on this panel was Chris Sotomayor, Vera Greentea, Ulysses Farinas, Joseph Iliage, Fernando Ruiz, and Alex DeCampi. And don't forget there will be more special edition coverage to come. Stay tuned at amberunmasked.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk About Checks. Um, there's a lot of noise around, so if we can't hear you, like, wave at us. Um, uh, or if you can't hear us, wave at us. Uh, we all need to talk loud. There's a clever sound divider between the two panels, which does not divide sound at all. Um, we're still waiting for a couple of our panelists. I think there's a bathroom issue where there's, like, one working bathroom in this entire barn. And, um... Fernando is probably using it, um, and Joe's in the taxi on his way here. But we have so much to tell you, we thought we'd start now. Um, and I'm going to start off with introducing the people we do have. And um, what I'm going to ask you to do when you when your slide comes up is say who you are and what you do in comics. And then tell us what your first pro-comics gig was, like when someone paid you money to do some part of a comic, and how you got that gig. Because... You know, it's all. You'll, you'll, there'll be a common thread, which we'll, which we shall reveal later. Um, I'm Alex. I write comics. More about me later. Hi. Thank you all for coming. There are a lot of you. It's, it's my first comic panel moderating, and I'm only mildly terrified. Okay, Ulysses. Hi, I'm Ulysses Farinas. Um, the last book I worked on was Judge Dredd, Mega City 2, with Douglas Wolf. Um, currently working on this comic called Amazing Forest, and this other comic called Gamma. Um, the first gig I got was Transformers, Heart of Darkness, for IDW. Um, do you want the page rates, too? What, what? We'll do rates. We'll do rates. Well, yeah, you can tell rates if you want. You know, oh, like, oh, yeah. oh, oh, wait, do I got it? Yeah, let's see how we got it. I, I, I got it. The first time I got it, it was a little weird. I actually went to a, a Google cache page for IDW and found an old email address for a submission, a submission email, because they did, actually took down their submission email address. And I emailed that address, and the editor from Transformers, Bobby Kernel, he actually wrote me back. And he was like, yeah, but you want to work on it? And I was like, yes. I didn't expect anyone to actually reply from the defunct email address, but it must have still been up, just the website itself, the page itself was taken down. That's how I got my first gig. Green 
self-publishing for about four years right now, and I just got my first pro gig with Dark Horse Peaky Comics. My comic is coming out in August, August 5th. Um, order it. Um, how I got it? Actually, I got it with, through Alex. I was sharing the booth at New York Comic Con with Alex. Her editor came to hang out with her, and as I when I left, when I came back and I, I saw this dude sitting in my chair, and I was like, who are you? And um, turned out he was an editor of PP, and he was looking through my stuff, and he said, do you want to pitch something? And I said, yeah. So, and that's how I got my first gig. And if all of you have self-publishing questions, Vera has done like multiple successful Kickstarters. You know, coming from no background in the industry, she's published Papa and then two miniseries. Yes. And like doing um, Kickstarters for each individual issue. So how many successful Kickstarters have you done? Eight. Wow. So she knows a bit. Um, and only now is she starting to get paid work in comics, like other than, you know, that tall comic dollar you earn from Kickstarter, that profit that's like keeping you in, in you know, the Upper East Side in your Lamborghini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Joseph P. Illich. Hello, hello. Um, wow, so we tell our bios first and then I can well, take my laser off and we can get into it? How does it work? Well, say, um, just say what you do in comics and, and tell people how you got your first pro gig in comics, like the first time you were paid to do something in comics. Wow. Okay. Um, my name is Joseph Village. I'm a writer and editor in comics. My career started at Milestone, which is the first black-owned comic book company to have a publishing deal with DC Comics. And then from there I went to DC Comics and I was an editor of the Batman line of books during Batman No Man's Land and the 2000 relaunch. And then after that I went to Arkea. Arkea was a creator-owned comic book company. Um, they're most well-known for Mouse Guard, and Arkea is now a division of Boom. And I am now writing a Harlem Renaissance graphic novel for first, second books, and I am a freelance editor. And the way I got my first professional gig was I started at the bottom, and I was an intern at Milestone, and I was there for three months, and I did all the grunt work. But while doing the grunt work, I learned how a comic book business worked, not only on the creative side, but on the business side. So after three months, I said, hey, you know what? This has been fun. I really dig it, but I have to go get a paying job. And they offered me a job. And that was my first gig in comic books. And we'll talk a lot more about things like that as we go along. That's the first important lesson of comics. This industry does not give you anything unless you ask for it. Ask for money. started at the Kubrick School. I enrolled in the Kubrick School. I was there for three years. It's a three-year program. Um, one of the great things about the school is they bring, they invite all the different comic book companies to the school to go over the graduating students' portfolios. Um, so Marvel, DC, if they don't come to the school, then the school takes the students to them on field trips and things. Uh, so one of the companies that came uh, the year I was graduating was Archie Comics. So I was uh, very fortunate that Archie, uh, Archie's editor-in-chief, Victor Gorelick, and uh, the legendary Dan DiCarlo, drew Archie for like 50 years, uh, they both came, they looked at my portfolio, and they liked what I could do. Um, so I was, I was very fortunate in that, that very day, uh, Victor offered me my first story. So I was, I was able to graduate, and a week after I graduated, I, um, I went to the Archie offices for the first time and they gave me my first script, which was um, kind of a sh short little five-page Archie story which appeared in uh, Archie's Pals and Gals Double Digest number eight. Hi, uh, my name is Christopher Sotomayor and uh, I'm a freelance colorist with Marvel DC legendary groups pretty much everywhere, because um, it's freelance and that's what you do. I also run an illustration studio that uh, dabbles in packaging, boutique artwork for toy companies, game companies, uh, storybooks, uh, other corporate comics, things like that. 
Um, I'm going to do my story a little memento style because it's it's a lot of comics and getting into comics is about connections and you know common threads. As Alex, I'm sure we'll touch on later. Um, my first uh, paid freelance gig was with Disney Adventures Magazine, which I had gotten from connections that I made while I was an editor at a smaller publisher that had done a publishing deal with Image Comics, um, which I had gotten from an apprenticeship uh, with a former milestone founder, Michael Davis, uh, where I interned in his studio uh, for, I don't know, about three or four years before I actually got my editorial position in 1994. Um, <clears throat> through that apprenticeship program, I met uh, not just other upcoming artists like John Paulian, Bernard Chang, Sean Martinborough, um, those guys, and, and a bunch of others, but I was also afforded the opportunity to meet with and speak with guys like Dennis Callen, Walt Simonson, Dwayne McDuffie, and a bunch of guys who not just helped start Milestone, which was uh, very important at the time, um, and I think still is very important now. Its legacy is, is uh, immeasurable. Um, but that all started even from an introduction. Um, I kind of stalked a, a, an artist, a comic book artist named Dennis Callen, uh, from when I went to art school at SBA here in New York, and he introduced me to Michael Davis, who gave me the uh, position in his studio, the apprenticeship in his studio, and like I said, that got me the editorial position in 1994, and then from there, in 1996, I started my freelance career. I think one of the common threads I wanted to pull out, like, although Ulysses is the only person who's done his first gig by a cold calling, Ulysses is special, um, and an amazing artist. Um, uh, I'm Alex, um, I write comics. My first pro gig was, um, I was, uh, IDW uh, took my book Smoke in 2005. Um, I sold that book. I started writing comics because I hung out in bars in London and I had a bunch of friends who wrote comics who also hung out in the same bars. Um, and I'd write comics as a kid, I you know, grew up on Claremont's X-Men. Um, and um, they, I went to San Diego and they, five friends who were writing for IDW, introduced me to Chris Ryle um, and also a couple of other publishers so I could hand over my pitch. And Chris gave us the best deal and that was my first paid comics gig. Um, I personally have never gotten a single ounce of comics work by a cold mailing. It's always by a friend of a friend or a recommendation or, oh, can you introduce me to? What about you guys? Like, how much have you, have you gotten by just people you don't know versus by a chain of connections? No, I was thinking, wait, yeah. <laughs> I may get an opportunity through a friend because what happened was after I left Milestone, I actually was a temp assistant editor in the Green Lantern office. So I worked on the Green Lantern books, I worked on the Tangent books, and what happened was after a few months of doing that, I went to Simon & Schuster and I worked in the Star Trek division, and what happened was a spot appeared in the Batman office, and because of the good work that I did when I worked with the Green Lantern and Tangent people, they offered me a job. So even though getting the temp gig was through a recommendation, and that recommendation wouldn't have flown if I didn't do good work at Milestone. The work that I did as a temp got me the Batman game. So one relationship did get me in, but that relationship was able to use the foundation of my work ethic. And I think that's really the most important thing. I realize now a lot of people say it's all about who you know and this and that, but someone who's gonna recommend you is putting their neck on a chopping block. So if they recommend you, in a strange way, you have an obligation to make them look good. Yes, I'd agree with that. I mean, you have to be good. Like, the baseline is you have to be good. Um, but the point I'd like to suggest about the fact that so much of this business, so many, like, people will open doors for you. It's up to you to walk through the door and be good enough to be well-received once, once you go through that door. Um, the point about connections is that Okay, so this business happens a lot on connections. So a comic book comes out that you think like is terrible and you should you could do it so much better. What do you do? Do you email the editor who edited that book and say, oh, this writer's terrible, I could do so much better. Oh, this artist doesn't know what I'm having. Do you do that? Do you tweet about how rubbish the new like mainstream X book, you know, book is and like and, and, and how you could do it so much better? 
at all. So, you know, because these are chains of friendship, you have to, uh, you know, it's totally fine to rip apart comic books. We do that all the time. Indirect message conversations and at bars in real life. Like, I, like friends of mine and I will come like, like to a bar with a stack of comics and we'll just go through them and say exactly what we think. That is the place to do it. You know, I'm not saying don't express yourself. I'm saying don't insult potential future employers. It's a very small industry out there. And it's really easy to check someone's Twitter feed or Facebook feed, you know. You think you're being clever, but you'd be amazed. So some of the stuff we're going to talk about is going to seem like pretty rich stuff to you guys, because a lot of people, when you know, this is Maslow's hierarchy. Um, I've done a comics version of it. You know, most of us, when you're just starting out, you just want to get published on that bottom line. You don't care if you get paid, you just want like, to get your comic out there. Um, but we're going to really start off talking about some of the higher level stuff, like what is a good contract and what is a living wage, because we realize that in the beginning, you know, if it's a bad deal or no deal, pretty much anyone's going to sign the bad deal, because it gets you in and it gets you something printed that you can then hand to other people to get the good deal. But we just want you to keep in mind as you progress through the industry, and I hope you all do, that you should know what you're aiming towards and know what a good contract is, what a good wage is, you know, what you're worth. Knowledge is power, and there's a saying like, oh, we don't talk about money. Um, that was a saying started by basically capital to keep labor enthralled in it, you know, from an old socialist perspective. Not talk, the people who don't want you to talk about money are the people who have a lot of money. Um, so when you compare notes and find out that like, oh, so-and-so is being paid twice what you are, you know, then you can work and organize or at least go and say, hey, you know, my next book with you, I'd like $100 as a page rate. And they go, oh, really? And, oh, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's great. You know, or you can realize how good a deal you're being offered in the relative scheme of things. And I know some of you will probably be like, oh, but I am an artist that just wells forth from inside me and I have to produce and I don't even care if I get paid. Do you know who started that particular line of bullshit? That was Lord Byron. Is there any clue in his name about how much money he has and how much he needed money? Lord Byron? He didn't, like, of course he could sit there and, like, well up and, like, write poetry all day. Like, he was rich. So, you know, unless you're a lord, keep your eye on the prize. Like, you have to be in this for the long term. You have to be paid what you're worth, and you have to keep control of the things that are yours and not give them up without knowing you're giving them up. Um, so first we're going to talk about the top of Maslow's hierarchy, which is contracts. You know, again, when you start out, you're pretty much going to take any contract that you're offered because you're getting a contract, um, but there are things you should watch out for. The caveat is we are not lawyers. None of you are a lawyer, are you? No, no lawyers. No lawyers. We are people who have signed a lot of contracts, good and bad. And I'd say, you know, everyone signs at least two bad deals in this business. In this you sign two bad contracts. If you sign more than that, it's up to you. But nobody's perfect. I've taken the bad deal. My bad deal was Tokyo Pop. I signed that contract twice. Um, I now don't own those properties and they're kind of stuck forever in limbo. Um, I don't regret signing that contract, but I would not do it again. Um, I'm going to quickly go over some areas to watch in contracts and then I thought we could all share some of our experiences about contracts and collaboration and stuff. Um, it is the three R's. Rights, royalties, and reversions. Rights, what is the publisher taking? Um, they generally take all the publishing rights. That's fine, they're publishing the book, they should have publishing rights. Um, the two areas you need to look at and watch like a hawk for are secondary rights, film, TV, merchandising, whatever, um, and also foreign publication rights. Who has those? Like if, if German publisher wants to publish a deluxe version of your comic, who has the right to negotiate that deal? Is it your publisher or is it you? And you might think, I don't know anything about negotiating deals or like doing Hollywood, so it's much better if the publisher does that. Possibly not. Sometimes the publishers don't do anything about the foreign rights, and then you kind of say, hey, I'm a little bigger in the industry now, I have an agent who can handle that, can I have them back? The publisher's like, no, you signed a contract. 
That's the thing about contracts. They're not for the good times. They're for the bad times. They're protecting you in the bad times when the guy you knew and who's your best friend in the company left. You're a lot bigger and you want the property back. Um, so, and, um, the secondary rights thing, you think, oh, it's so nice that they can take care of something for Hollywood for me, and they have a production company, and that's wonderful, and that production company has a first look deal with Universal or whatever. Um, the difficulty with that is it begins a game of inside baseball. Um, the, the publisher comes to you and says, hey, our own production company wants to do an option on this. They're going to pay you $5,000 up front. Oh my god, you're getting $5,000 for your idea. That's like big Hollywood money. Woo! Yeah. $5,000 and $25,000 if it's made into a movie, which, you know, frequently doesn't happen. That's not a fair rate. That's them, you know, that's, that's the production company getting a cheap option on a property co-owned by the, the actual publishing company that's like part of them. And what they're essentially doing is getting like cheap to free IP because like the usual upfront for an option is $25 to $100,000. So you get your measly thousand dollars, you get your measly five thousand dollars, you're on Twitter going, I got an option, I got an option. Well, congratulations, you also just got ripped off. So that's why it's a good idea if you keep all of your film rights, do not give them to people, especially people who already have an associated company that they're going to try to shift you towards. Royalties. Um, this is a big thing for work for hire contracts. Um, do you, like some work for hire contracts, just get a check. You write your script, you do your art, you get a check, done. That's it. That's all you'll ever see. And then you start seeing like lovely hardback versions of the book come out. And they're paperback. And then they republish it and it becomes really popular. You're never going to see any more money from it. That's it. You've got your check. Royalties are what keep you alive when no rain falls in your career. Are, like, when no one wants to know you, and that happens to everybody, you have a couple of years when no one wants to know you, you're not trendy, you had a book that bombed, doesn't matter. The royalties that keep coming through from your other books are those like little $300, $500, $1,000 little bits of joy that keep you alive. And also, like, so always make sure you get royalties and look at scans, unless you've got to pay your rent. Try not to take contracts, work for higher contracts that don't pay you a royalty. You know, Essentially, like, if your book becomes Dark Knight, you know, you want to be paid every time that thing gets sold. If it's Watchmen, you want to keep seeing that money coming in. And speaking of Watchmen, my last point on contracts, reversions, a.k.a. the Alan Moore Clause. Alan Moore no longer owns Watchmen because his deal with Vertigo was, DC at the time, was... Uh, DC would have the rights to the book as long as it was still in print. Well, lots of Alan's British work had gone out of print fairly quickly. You know, British publishing was fairly small. So he signs a deal thinking, yeah, we'll get it back in a couple of years when everyone stops buying Watchmen. Well, DC realized it was an important book and it never stopped being out of print. When does your work come back to you? How do you protect yourself if the comic book company goes bankrupt, which a lot of the smaller ones do? How many of you guys work for a company that's gone bankrupt and or vanished? Raise your hand. some like production, Hollywood production companies, comic book arm, and to do some adaptation of something or other. And they may go bankrupt while you're publishing the book. Or you may do something like Tokyo Pop, where you're doing creator-owned, but they have a part share of it. They go bankrupt, and you're not going to be able to get your stuff back, because they, they sell the rights off really cheaply to an associated company in a sort of a three-card Monty-type deal, which is totally legal, just not very fair. They sell it cheaply to someone else before they go bankrupt, and then that company inherits all, all your stuff, and you'll never get it back to that company. Um, so, two things to make sure of. The, the if it stops being in print clause is no longer really relevant because of digital comics. Like, when does it stop being in print? You know, it's always going to be on Comixology. It'll always be in print. You know, so rather than saying, oh, if the company goes bankrupt, I get my stuff back, it should be, if my creator-owned work, if my sales drop below a thousand units a year, or a thousand dollars, these are usual, these are common, common levels, the rights return to me after a full calendar year. That protects you. Bankruptcy is not, not a safe harbor because of the way you can trade rights cheaply. Anyway, uh, contracts, where have you guys fallen afoul? What's your worst contract you ever signed? 
I actually had a, a contract come up recently that I didn't sign um, because I was fortunate enough to recognize it uh, before I was about to put pen to paper. Um, and again, I, my background is maybe a little different because I came up through an apprenticeship program. In that apprenticeship program, we all traded a lot of information. Uh, so I learned a lot about the business side, not just about the art side. And that's something I actually try to bestow upon my class. I teach an art class for comicsexperience.com. Um, and at the end of, the, at the, end of the, the course session, I go through a lot of this stuff with my students to protect them. Um, the contract that I didn't sign was with a fairly new publisher that came up in the last couple of years. Uh, and I saw some really weird clauses about not being able to show any of my work that I was doing for the company, not being able to really discuss the work. It was kind of an NDA, but wrapped in uh, a work-for-hire contract. And then they have really draconian rules, like you will you know, you know, forfeit this and forfeit that. Right. Yeah. right. So what I did was, I didn't sign the contract, and I never promoted the work because that contract said I couldn't. So I never mentioned anything about that publisher, and I still won't. Um, I had no problem taking their money. I did get paid. Uh, but I knew I was running that risk by not signing that contract. So I don't recommend you don't sign the contract, but I recommend you negotiate against the terms you don't like. Um, they expect you to negotiate. You know, you don't like, sometimes you're just so grateful for work, you're like, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'll sign it. Read the whole damn contract. Come on, it's not that long. Read it a few times. Yeah, and ask for help. Like, ask for a friend, you know, for, if you have a family friend who's a lawyer who wants to help you parse the language, that's cool. But, you know, read all of it. Or if you even just know someone who signed a bunch of these contracts, you know, get some feedback. Um, I, at one point, had a little bit of access to Harris Miller, who's a big-time comic lawyer back in the 90s. Uh, not that he was a big-time lawyer back in the 90s, because he's still kind of big-time. But I had access to him in the 90s. So I learned a few things from just being around him for a little bit. Um, and I kind of knew what to watch out for. But things like, you know, don't talk about this, don't show this. Uh, my attitude was, okay, I won't. And that was it. And I, I, never, I never bothered to promote, I never discussed. And I just, I did the work and I knew it was a gamble. Uh, it was a gamble that at the time I was able to take financially and it wound up paying off anyway. And I, you know, it, that just, it didn't, I didn't let it complicate my life. Uh, those terms were just they were And it's also worth if you sign a contract and then, you know, they start taking the piss. Like, you have to do 10 revisions of it. Like, you know, you finish pages, they're approved, and then they come back and make them, you change them again and again and again. Before you take another gig with that publisher, ask them for hazard pay. Say, if you have to change things after they've been approved, you want half rate again. Because a really well paid gig can turn into a soul destroying, like, time of hell that breaks you if you then have to constantly do revisions due to a licensor not being able to make up their mind or the company not having a specifically, um, you know, the company itself, its editorial not being able to make up its mind. Because you know, there are a lot of ed great editors out there. And that's another thing you should be thinking about is talk to your friends in comics, find out who the good editors are, approach them. There are also a whole bunch of damn fools. And you don't want to work for a damn fool because of the miserable experience. The other thing I'd say is remember that your editor has nothing to do with the contract process. It's completely separate divisions. Do not front to your editor about the shitty contract. Because I, when I was at Tokyo Pop, again, shitty contract, I was, I was going to sign that contract a third time because, hey, I was doing comics and money in Tokyo Pop. Um, and I was going to do a book with a young up-and-coming artist. And he was sent the contract. And he took, he went off on our editor, I still have the email, I almost wanted to frame it. He went off on our editor so hardcore about the contract, the personal insults and degradation and stuff like that, that we were like, we were just like, no, I'm sorry, we canceled the book. So I was like, I'm not gonna work with this guy. My editor's like, I'm certainly not gonna work with this guy. My editor's now at DC. This kid's never worked again. A lot of the process, like sort of the, the dance of formality around comics is also like, are you socially able to function in a professional environment. It's not good enough to be a good artist or a great artist or a great writer. You have to also be able to function at least you know, on a bare minimum civilized level with people.
And if you want to hear more about why you should not do your work for free, go to YouTube and type in these five words. Harlan Ellison paid the writer. Yes. You watch that video and you will understand. You never work for free. Because your talent has a dollar value. And if you're gonna, if you're like, I'm, so yeah, like, don't uh, email IDW and be like, I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles so much, I do one of those variant covers for free. Well, newsflash, with the rate they gave it, almost free. Um, and don't do that, you're pissing in the pool for everybody else. Once you start being known as an artist who'll do anything for free at the last minute, no one will give you money, because why should they? You're happy to give it away for free. Yeah, that's the other thing, is like you may, like there are, 
Every one of us has a project that got finished or a script that we've been paid for, often at the big two, that just sits in the flat file because they change direction and it's not needed anymore. So, you know, don't get too excited when you sign your first big two contract because that work might not come out. You know? And again, they don't mean anything by it. It's just strategy changed, a book was canceled before it got around to your fill-in issue. You know, stuff happens. But, you know, you should know that it happens and it's happened to most of us. Paul Tobin always jokes that some of his best work is living in a flat file. Wow. Uh, agents, who has an agent? Can you do have agents? I'm not talking to one. Are agents like cadence or anything like that? I know agents, but I have never dealt with an agent. Usually, when I've dealt with contracts, I'm fortunate enough that I know enough lawyers that I will actually, and knowing a lawyer doesn't mean, hey dude, will you look at this for free? Literally, I'll say, okay, tell me what your rate is. I need you to scan over this contract. What's an hour of your time worth? And I will pay it. Because the same way you want people to, disres to respect you for your time, you have to respect other people for their time, even if they're your friends, unless they say, I'll do it for nothing. So I have had lawyers look over all of my contracts. I have had peers look over my contracts. I have emailed people who have done cartoons for Cartoon Network and popular films, because I know them. I say, hey, listen, tell me, is this kosher or not? So. In lieu of agents, knowing lawyers, and knowing people in the business and getting advice is a good alternative. I see a lot of young writers especially thinking they have to have an agent as a badge of honor. It's like that makes them a real creator. No. Like, you don't have to collect an agent, and you shouldn't, because the agent you're going to get in the beginning isn't the agent that you want. You're going to get Ulysses' agent, like, yeah. who got him a shitty deal and then bounced and then wanted 10%. Well, you know, that agent has now, like, kind of been blacklisted by a lot of comic people because we try to do that for a bunch of people. Excellent. And, like, Excellent. and everyone knows who he is now, like, and it's just, like, good for him. There know? are people who try to prey on you to come in, like, you know, I'm, I'll be a film agent for you, and, I'll, by the way, we also have a production company, or I'll be this agent. You know, I think um, artist, some line artists get agents earlier because they work with, like, someone to sell their original art and market their original art, like Cadence or something like that, and that's but don't expect you're going to like, after your first comic script, you're going to land at CAA and have, a, have an agent. Like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I don't have an agent because after that experience, I'm kind of paranoid about, about it. But to a certain extent, like, the industry has changed so much that if you're not in charge of your, your own marketing and branding, like, what you do, then an agent's not even going to help you to a certain extent. It's like you... Everyone who's like a freelancer, it's, it's so much more important nowadays to put yourself out there as you are your own products than if you rely on someone else to do it. I, I personally don't trust it. I think it's smarter for you to know how to run your own business and promote yourself than to wait for someone to put your name somewhere. Okay, here's, here's the, 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 the battle slide we've all been waiting for. What do you get paid in comics? And this represents a massive range. I don't know if you guys can see that down there. We all we all collaborated on this on these amount lists. We did and then we got we got some help from a secret party. Any of y'all know DC Comics Secret Six comic book? Any of y'all familiar with that? Okay, so you know that there's like six people and there's a secret person called Mockingbird, right? Who's name is never revealed. Well, we had a mockingbird yeah. who helped us with this, yeah. whose name we can't reveal, but we're thankful to mockingbird. Yes. Um, these are starting rates, pretty much. Um, the indie you'll see is a really huge range from, you know, like, Chris, did you ever color a page for as little as $35 a page?
history of comic books. And he was the regular Wonder Woman cover artist. And due to a series of events, Mark Chiarello, the art director, gave someone else the Wonder Woman cover gig for three months. That happened. Matt Haley did three Wonder Woman covers back to back. Adam Hughes came back, never again was he laid on a cover. It doesn't matter who you are, you have to be on time. So basically, do the opposite of what I did for this panel. Basically. How I came in a few minutes late, no, no, no. Not sexy, not good for your reputation, always be on time. Because you will be able to use that as leverage when you negotiate a better rate. When you go to your editor, and your editor has to go to their boss, you can say that I did this monthly book, I did 12 months, I always gave in my pages on time, I maintained or excelled in quality, so that's why I'm asking you to advocate for a better rate for me. Um, the worst rate I got was 90 a page, and I did really um, Yeah, that was colors. Um, I, I, I owned it, but then I renegotiated it to 120 a page, which still stinks because I had to pay the colorist out of my pocket, so it really is just, no, he's getting less, he's getting pennies. Um, but it's like, a lot of times, uh, the problem I run into, because I do all the line art, is I have a really dense art style, which is like really, you know, some, some pages will take me seven days to do. And I do run into the problem where I will have to rush on the rest of the book because there's that one page and it took me so long. There's never enough time for any book. And the, never ever. You still get the same page rate whether you did the most beautiful one page or you did the most sparse, like nothing's on that page. And um, I found I've, I've ended up coming up with like weird ways of like saving time, like drawing at 50% size. So, so that I'll, I'll, I'll do like two pages on one page, like they don't know the difference, like they still give you the two, two page rate. Um, so as an artist, you end up having to, I actually make sure that I keep my working speed at 20 an hour. So no matter what, if it's the biggest page I have to do or the smallest page, I have to get all the pages done so I'm earning 20 an hour at the minimum for any project. And that's like how I manage my time because you will run into, if you're an artist, like something that you, like some pages that are just a two-day page versus a half-hour page. That's just my Zephira, how badly did you pay yourself on the Kickstarter stuff? Oh, I, don't, I don't pay myself at all. Um, I do want to talk about that for a second. Um, if you are somebody who wants to create their own book, you want to use Kickstarter, you want to do some pitch pages, and you, let's say you're only a writer, I mean, you are a writer, and um, you want to hire an artist, do take care of your artist, do pay them. Um, you might not be able to pay them, like, whatever they have, $700 for a cover, but, you know, try to pay them a decent indie rate, at least. Um, and if you can't pay, if you have, for example, when, when I do a project, I do a budget beforehand, I project how much money I might make from Kickstarter, or or I see how much money I have, and I figure out what my budget is, and if, let's say, uh, for example, in that Forgotten Spirits, my, my series, I had, um, I forget, it was like 2,700 um, art budget, and I knew that for 22 pages of work, that's not a lot to pay an artist, so I decided to, so I rewrote it, and I made it 50 pages, an issue, so now the artist would be getting a much more decent Now I don't feel that way at all. I feel actually made the comic better, and I got to pay my artist much more. And now she's coming. You know, she came back to all, all four issues, and I and I actually give raises. Um, at the end of Kickstarter, if I do make more, and yeah, I bet the I bet the work came in on time because she was getting paid for it. The work does come in on time. You want your art to be on time? Pay your artist. I know it's like like a lot of writers are like, oh, I'll just write my comic strip in the evenings after my day job, and I don't understand why my artist can't do the same thing. You know, the average comic page takes one to two days to do completely. Some take longer if they're very complicated. It's not something you can 
do at night, especially if you have a family and you want to see them, or you know, in case you want to go out. So it's much harder for an artist to have a day job and produce a book. Whereas if you're being paid for it, you can, you know, you're much more incentivized to like take weekends off and, and sit down at your drawing table or cut your job down, hours of your job down, or something like that. Like paying artists is really important because art takes a long time. I think that's that's really important. Like a lot of a lot of times, people they well, who are artists, they really, you know they draw because they love it. And I actually don't draw any of my own work. Nothing. Even my most favorite ideas do not leave my body unless there's a page break somewhere. Like I will not do. And I I can say like I love drawing. I'm not really sure if I do. It's just what I do. But I do not sit my sit at my table and start putting pen to paper unless there's some dollar amount coming into my yearly budget and it, you have to like look at it like yes I love to draw but I love to live a lot more like I love to pay rent a lot more and if, if you're sacrificing your life so you could you know make a mark on a piece of paper I, I really don't think you're you really care about your art at all then if, you, if you're doing it and you're not going to be in the long term because you'll, you'll like you'll break down you'll be like I can't do this anymore I'm horribly in debt you know, I hear all these like young comics people going, yeah, I'm printing my first book, I'm really, really in debt, I really have to make it work, and blah, blah. it's like, well, you're not thinking about this in any business-like sort of way, you're just doing stuff without any idea how to tell it, or pitching your work, or stuff like that. Yeah, if, if you're going to pitch your work, I, yeah, I see people who, who are working on like 150-page graphic novels, have no one caring if they want, no one wants it, no one likes the art, no one likes the writer, and I, and I tell them, like, make maybe four to eight pages tops, and then see if you find a publisher. Yeah, or, or, or look for anthologies. There are always anthologies being kickstarted. We're, we're going to give you a rate. Spike Trotman, Iron Circus Comics. That's a great one to hook up with. She's incredibly businesslike. She pays her people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, but don't ever do anthologies that don't pay. Ever. Yeah. They only benefit the editor. An anthologies are like the, the worst idea ever. Because most of them never pay. And some never come out, but it's a great way to get your feet wet and do an eight page, your first eight pages of sequentials, your first four pages of sequentials. Oh, it's hard, Alex, to write a short story. Suck it up and do it. Here's one thing about race that's important too, as a freelancer, and this goes back to something that a friend of mine, um, Phil Jimenez, said when he was interviewed in the SBA Journal because we're both um, graduates of School of Visual Arts. When you get that first paycheck. Remember that some of it has to go to the IRS. So when you are budgeting your income, remember that a portion of that is going to have to be paid next year in taxes. And if you don't take out any of it along the way, you are going to get nailed next year. So another good thing to have as a freelancer is a good accountant. You must have a good accountant who can be your ally in there are always artists scratching around for like fast, high-paying work in March. <laughs> we have time for like three questions because we talk a lot. So um, line them up. There's a mic there. You're self-publishing a story as a novel. That means you're promising. You're a publisher. How would the rights be affected? Does the copyright help the negotiations? And what state would you suggest having contracts with them? Um, do contracts immediately. I mean, especially even when you're self-publishing between you and your collaborator. It doesn't have to be a formal contract. It can just be like, hey, you own 50%, I own 50%, but you don't own, the, but you don't vest the 50% until you finish the work. That's crucial. Because um, I've had people not finish work. Um, so if you've got a novel, you're doing a graphic novel version of it, it's the same thing? No, written novel, adapted to it, So I'm going to actually... And you have a publisher for this? Or I did at a point. I didn't like the fact that they wanted too much of the ownership of the characters, so I walked away from the deal. And now I want to self-publish it for Amazon to keep it, because I really enjoy the story at this point, so I'd rather go with that route. I still want these characters in my mind. It started as a comic. I just got really excited with the idea. You're going to have a really hard time. Like, your first Kickstarter project should not be a 200-page graphic novel. No one knows who you are. You're never going to find an artist who's willing to give up a year and a half of their life to draw your pages, and you're never going to be able to raise enough money. That's why I want to do this novel and I want to take parts of it and see a smaller comic. Okay. So I'm going to go into the novel. This is kind of a long and personal question. Hit me 
later because I want to get through the other questions. Thank you all for doing this. This has been very helpful. Oh, you're welcome. With pre-throwing stuff, uh, specifically with collaborators and generating collaboration agreements, uh, what does that process look like? What, what is the kind of discussion that goes ahead in putting, um, you know, putting together agreements on paper? And uh, what's it like sort of uh, dealing with any sort of uh, conflict that arises between collaborators that, that may have kind of a legal aspect? I mean, the first thing you have to understand is that if you're the writer, artist visualizes your characters. You do not give that artist designs in any way. This artist creates designs, that person is a co-creator. And you need and you need to be wary of that. And if you're an artist and a writer comes to you and says, visualize my ideas, you need to be wary of that. So if you're a writer and you want to own all the rights, then you need to go to that artist with designs of your characters. If that artist agrees to be a part of your project, whomever, artist, letterer, colorist, have to come up with some kind of wage to pay them. But if you're collaborating, whosoever creates that idea or that format contributes to it. They are a co-creator and you have to be honest about it and ready for that. If you are not ready for that, write prose. Yeah. Honestly, if you are not ready for that, write prose. You can write a comic book or a graphic novel and want to keep all the rights to yourself and then just hire the artist's work for hire. You're an asshole if you do that. Um, and the word will get around. But you can do it. You just have to have a really clear agreement. I am hiring you. But then you're looking at the right-hand side of these rights. You know, like, oh, well, I own all of this and I want to pay you $25 a page for art and 100 bucks for the cover. No, hell no. No one's, like, the person who's going to take that is not the person you want all your book. Um, so if you're going to be grabby with the rights, you have to pay them a lot more because you're paying for their time to not be on a book, which, which pays Yeah, I mean, here's another alternative. I'm working with someone now on a project, and basically the deal is, I will pay you X so you can get done what you need to get done, and our agreement is that that will come out of your loyalty. That will come out of your back end. So that way it's like giving you a little something now. And I realize it takes you time to do this. But once a clock starts ticking on your royalties, I want a compensation for that. Because that artist is a co-creator. That artist is not just work for hire. So you can't negotiate, but you have to be open to understanding what that person's needs are. I think uh, related to that is a lot of... Um, a lot of artists will be approached by writers with their like amazing idea, and they'll have a lot of money. I call those take the money and run gigs, where you get 50% up front of whatever the total is. And you just take that money, do the project, they'll promote it, and then take the last 50% when you're done, and let them continue on with their dream. That's, uh, that's, that's how So one more quick question, right? The way I work on my books is I always make sure the line artists and colorists get advances because they need to have that to feed their families and pay their rent. Um, you know, like, Walmart doesn't take exposure. You know, you can't feed your family on exposure or back end. Meaningless. Yeah. Um, so they all, get, they all get advances up front. They come out of the, if we have royalties on the back end, which you probably won't have, okay? Like, let me tell you about that tall comics dollar. Um, if you're selling more, you know, less than six to eight thousand issues a month, there isn't going to be shit left on the back end. Yeah, I work with a collaborator who is like my best friend when I was eleven. But when it comes to our contracts and how we work business-wise, our friendship is left at there's a lot. Especially with your friends, yeah. you need yeah. contracts. Like Working with your friends can like result in your, other horror shows. Your friends are the worst people to work with, so you have to be very diligent and disciplined that you treat each other as business partners and that's all in writing and y'all haven't figured out before you've ever done anything before you've said any idea to each other it's like well how much are you doing how much am i doing how are we going to split this and have it all figured out because that is what tears apart your friendship and then ultimately worse tears apart your business I give 50% to my artists of 50% of, of ownership so we co-own it because it's just really not fair because the amount of art and creativity they're pouring into your project, it's not mine at the end of the day, it's ours. Um, so yeah, you should really, like if it's creator-owned, you should really share with your artists. 
Be careful in the beginning though, especially if you're new and you find this artist you think is great and they're amazing and they haven't published that much. And you're like, why isn't this guy like working for DC or Marvel or doing all these books? And you start working with him. Because he's crazy, okay? There are a lot of people who are great artists who are nuts. And you start working with them and you realize why they're not working regularly. Just because they can't function, they can't collaborate, they don't get their work done on time, they're drunk, whatever. And then you have to fire their ass. So, as I said, make sure the 50% ownership comes when the book is finished, especially if you're self-publishing. Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't say you'd have to talk with us afterwards because that, that's, a, that's a really big answer, but I would totally be willing to talk to you about that. There's no silver lining. Uh, <laughs> it's exciting, but you don't make a lot of money for a long time unless you're doing mainstream DC Marvel work. Um, I have three books on stands right now. Like, you know, from the looks of it, you think I'm a pretty successful creator. I make less than $24,000 a year. It's like, what's the silver lining in coal mining? Yeah. What has so most of us in comics have a partner, like, you know, a family member or something like that that's, like, paying our rent, paying our health insurance and stuff like that because it's really hard to make a good, honest living, especially as a writer, especially if you're doing a lot of creator-owned projects where you're in it for the longer term. So once again, what you just heard was uh, one of the Making Comics panels from the 2015 New York Special Edition Comic-Con, and uh, I think it was a really informative panel. I've gone to uh, a lot of creator workshops, and when you get the kind of insight like this where people are very willing to openly discuss the dollars and the bad deals and things to watch out for. I think it's invaluable to everybody. It's, you know, even if you're not interested in ever making a comic and you're a fan and you love to read comics, if you think that everybody lives like some sort of rock star in a palatial estate because they've had their hands in something as big as a DC or Marvel book, it's just not true. So do, uh, you know, find out this behind-the-scenes information when you have those opportunities. And I think it was really great that ReadPop put together a, a track uh, of panels that were specifically about making comics. So there is more coverage to come. Stay tuned to AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget you could sponsor the show on the website by going to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. Cheers. <laughs>